the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, aliens wink in prime numbers, then disappear without a trace. What a wicked game to play to make us feel this way. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with Michael Z. Williamson this time about his excellent short story collection, Tide of Battle. This contains stories from Mike Williamson's Freehold Universe, fantasy that he and co-authors have written for Mercedes Lackey's Shared Universe Anthology, and a great standalone novella set in the clan of the Claw Universe. And there's some great nonfiction, incisive, hilarious, that's the way Mike Williamson rolls, so that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, something new and very cool will be available soon. Bain Books is proud to announce the sale of 13 new challenge coins. Inspired by the commemorative coin members of the armed forces give one another, and with the active participation of the authors, styled after some of our most popular military science fiction series, Bain offers Bain Challenge Coins. Hey, I have seen these. We have them framed in the office now, and they are super cool looking. Really cool. And if you buy a set, we'll give you one for free, and the proceeds from that 14th Bain Book Coin will go to... Help our veteran-oriented charities. We do Read Assist, which helps make books and other reading materials easily accessible to the disabled, including those disabled in combat. And Operation Bain Bulk, whose mission is to provide active-duty soldiers with e-readers preloaded with dozens of titles. For more information on pricing or to pre-order the first run of Bain Challenge Coins for yourself, please visit Bain.com, where we have all the details on getting your coin on. I want to welcome Michael D. Williamson to the podcast. Hello again, Mike. Hi there. Michael D. Williamson was born in England, raised in Liverpool and Toronto, Canada, and now resides in Indianapolis with his children. He's retired military, having served 25 years in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force uh, different times. He was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Desert Fox. Williamson, that is Mike is a state-ranked competitive shooter in combat rifle and combat pistol. His books set in his Freehold universe include Freehold and just a bunch of others. The series has two sub-series, with the latest entry being the novel Angel Eyes. He is also the author of Time Travel Novel, a long time until now. I really love that book, and it's working on a sequel to that one. And he is the editor of Fortune and Blood, an anthology of stories set in the Freehold universe that came out more recently. He's also the author of numerous short stories and nonfiction pieces and all kinds of other stuff. His first collection of these pieces is Tour of Duty, and now out of booksellers everywhere is Tide of Battle, which is another collection of great Michael Z. Williamson stories, essays, and humorous pieces. Mike, this is your second collection of stories. For a guy who's known for his novels, you sure write a lot of short stories. Um, what attracts you to the yeah. form? You, you say a little bit about this in the introduction. How come you keep writing? Uh, money. <laughs> yes, well. <laughs> I mean, not just the money, but um, I, you know, people keep asking, you know, will you write a story for this anthology? And we'll, you know, we'll pay you. It's like, well, you know, sure, because you know, I get to write a story. Some are more challenging than others, um, especially if it's in someone else's universe. But then I get paid, and then I get to put them into a collection. Um, some of them have been How reprinted sometimes. How are they different than, I mean, how, what's the creative process that's different about them, or is there? Oh, yeah. Um, well, a short story, you've only got a finite number of words to get a character or characters develop. The background of these characters present a conflict, have them resolve it, and hopefully you know, become more interesting characters in the process and wrap it up. 
uh, if you're in someone's existing universe, the the benefit is that the background of the universe is already established, but you still have to establish a character. Uh, and then you've got finite rules to work within that are already set there. If it's not an established universe, you've got more leeway, but then you have to put more background in very quickly. Yeah. You say in the in the introduction to Tide of Battle that you've gotten better at it over the mm-hmm. years. I think so. But it, it, it didn't come naturally to you necessarily at first. No, my um, my first attempts at short stories were very long and clunky because I was basically trying to write short novels. And one of those was actually in uh, the first anthology that was uh, The Price, which was written for uh, John Ringo's Citizens Anthology. Actually, I'd, I'd written it before that, but before that I basically gutted the story of about two-thirds of the words, rewrote them much shorter and more concisely, and presented it better. What was the, the one about the um, the companion sentient jaguar-like uh, creature that, to the soldier? Is that the one you were talking about? or No. Um, uh, that, was in a different, that was in Joe Haldeman's Future Weapons of War. That's um, Humans Called It Duty. Yeah, that's and, a great uh, story. <laughs> Whatever, however languagely you might be telling it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just sent you something else with that, so take a look. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. We've seen that. And um, there's, uh, there's another anthology in the works, and it's set during the, uh, the war with Earth and Freehold. And there is a story in there of uh, the last surviving leopard handlers taking uh, both their trained leopards and some of the ferals from the preserve and uh, depopulating a base late at night, one by two by one. It's uh, it's very well. It's not mine. It's somebody else wrote it for me in the universe, and it's very gripping. So the uh, the, the the combat leopards seem to have a fan following. Yeah, it, well, it's a, it's a wonderful evocative story. Um, it, it's 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 sort of like the the regard is strange. You really get into the mindset of how a cat must feel about its humans, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, so let's talk about Tide of Battle. Um, mm-hmm. The first story set was in a Rush tribute anthology. Oddly enough, yes. that is the band Rush. Um, mm-hmm. And it's about a kid who overcomes a pretty severe setback. Um, reminded me of How Spacesuit Will Travel and Starman Jones. Can you talk about, a little bit about the, uh, the, the reason you wrote this and what it's about? Yeah, I've known um, Kevin J. Anderson for a long time, and he's both a rock fan, a rush fan, and he's friends with the band. Uh, so he proposed putting together an authorized collection of stories based on their music. And he'd uh, asked on his uh, Facebook page from people who, you know, writers who were fans, and someone said, hey, Mike Williamson's a huge Rush fan. <clears throat> so he emailed me, and I said, yeah, sure. That sounds great. Uh, I picked one of the songs, and then by the time I was done, it was actually two and a half songs had sort of crept in there concept-wise. Um, um, and, of course, the band has always been huge sci-fi fans. <clears throat> a lot of, there's a lot of uh, um, sci-fi themes in the music, in the lyrics. <clears throat> um, so in the intro to that, I referenced which ones were influenced in some way or another so people can look them up and listen. Talk about the kid. Um, he's mm-hmm. he's really a winning character. And he, so, yeah, he, he always wanted to get, go into space. He always wanted to get away from, you know, people and the constraints of Earth. It's always been his dream. Um, gets bashed up in a accident of his own, um, <clears throat> his own, uh, not, not intentionally, but his own a- actions got him into a bad accident. And then um, basically insists to himself that that's not going to stop him. I've always, uh, you know, admired determination and success for people who, you know, know what they want to do and accomplish it. Yeah, he, he pushes through some pretty severe setbacks, um, and they have a science fiction tinge to them as well. <laughs> I was trying to picture his eyes, which uh, probably were pretty shocking looking, or are meant to be. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to decide if I was going to go with um, regrown uh, eyes, and I finally decided that given uh, some of the brain damage that he was going to have to have an actual prosthesis to interface, and of course we know one of the scientists who works on this kind of stuff, 
Yeah. Which, uh, you know, let me, uh, it gave me the idea to, to take the story in that direction. That scientist we know is Rob Hansen of, uh, and Dr. Ted Roberts is one of his students. He's written many things for our website as well. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. got him on the podcast. Um, if there's ever a zombie apocalypse, he probably caused it. Uh, <laughs> and well, at least we'll have the details of how to solve it, perhaps in a in a general science sort of way, in a beta article. So, <laughs> so well, uh, it's, that's a great opener. Uh, my, maybe my second, maybe my favorite story of yours ever is soft casualties because it's so insidious. Um, it's set in the freehold universe. It makes. It makes one look at sausage in a whole new light. Um, can you talk about this? Maybe talk about the idea of asymmetric warfare and um, yeah, that, that some of came the, about. I, I was talking to a friend in the AIM Bain Bar chat room, who's unfortunately no longer with us, and he and I were kicking around very low tech, low cost psyop uh, techniques for you know, making an enemy very, very unhappy with their existence. <clears throat> and that was one I came up with, and he, he just started laughing. He said that it's just, you know, horribly evil and diabolical. Uh, that'll be incorporated into the wartime anthology uh, as uh, part of what goes on. Basically, you know, the entire system is in um, resistance and rebellion to being invaded. It wasn't, it's not just a military issue. It's a case that everybody is rebelling. And you know, what do people who don't have a huge amount of training or equipment available do? And well, you go after the enemy's morale. You do everything you can. Uh, in previous wars, people have drugged food, um, poisoned food. They've uh, uh, gone after water supplies. Um, you know, I, I was trying. How can we escalate that? to make people afraid to even eat. And came up with a couple of ways, and that one, that one was fun. Yeah. What other vile uh, ideas for asymmetric warfare have you come up with? <laughs> Maybe uh, well, several them, yeah, several were mentioned in uh, Freehold and the Weapon. You know, if you take massive uh, response back behind the lines to areas the enemy is, is convinced are safe, and of course, yeah, after I wrote all that, then that type of stuff started happening in uh, the events in Iraq and Afghanistan. They didn't just go after the combatant troops. They went after the bases and the supply chains. And say that's exactly what I would expect to happen. Well, the other thing about uh, your freehold world uh, is that this is a planet that, that has loose alliances, semi-libertarian, uh, grand, and... Um, it's not liked by the UN, and and our character in Soft Casualty is a UN soldier who'd really rather be anywhere else in the world, right? I mean, the universe besides stationed on this shithole. He thinks of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've noticed, you know, when I've been deployed, uh, most troops are trying everything they can to at least maintain the illusion and the semblance of being home. It was hard to find local music to listen to, and I, I love learning things, you know, even if I'm traveling in a military context, so I, what's this local culture about? Um, I, I could identify some of, uh, because I play guitar and I, I've, I've got some background with that, I could listen to some of the music, and even though I had no idea what they were singing, I could go, this was done in the mid-1970s, judging from the guitar, the amp, and the recording technique. <clears throat> and I had no idea what some of the stuff was. And there were a couple songs I, I knew just barely enough Arabic to grasp that the chorus was repetitive and sappy. So it's just as stupid as some of our uh, pop songs. But because it was Arabic, well, I didn't have to listen to the lyrics, so I could enjoy it. Um, the first time I went over for Operation Desert Fox, I was with an engineer unit that was basically bedding down 2,000 troops. And we were only there for a few weeks. We went in, did the mission, got back out. And Kuwait, we got combat pay, but there was nothing actually going on at the time. It just happened that there was the bare possibility of a rocket attack that never happened. But we were very restricted on where we could go. Um, the the issue there was that the Army could go off base. The Air Force couldn't, because if you're off base and you're Air Force and someone catch, catches you as a, a hostage, the assumption is that you must be a pilot and you must know some secrets, even though most of the Air Force doesn't actually fly planes. And I 
couldn't tell you anything technically about aircraft because I worked on uh, mechanical equipment and runways. Uh, but, uh, so you know, the Army got passes into town, into Kuwait City. We didn't. So I didn't get to try any local food. I didn't get to... But so many of them wanted to play video games and stay on base and pretend that there wasn't a foreign culture out there at all. And that seems to be very common uh, in a lot of armies, uh, both contemporary and you know, throughout history. You know, the, the, the goal is not to acknowledge you know, that either the potential enemy are people or that you're not where you'd much rather be instead. So that played into it. Yeah. Uh, well, he certainly uh, jinxed himself by doing that. So, uh, mm-hmm. Star Home, the next story in the in the anthology, um, it's it's really complex and nuanced. I like it. We used it on the Bane dot com website to uh, mm-hmm. as a as a run up to Angelize, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. You talk about ri- micro nations in your introduction. How how is Star Home a micro nation? Um, so this is an abandoned, uh, inflated asteroid used as a jump point control station. As things drifted, as technology improved, a closer, more sophisticated one was built. This one was abandoned, and someone occupied it, which some people might recognize is somewhat similar to the background of uh, Sealand, which is a former uh, defensive gunnery platform that the Royal Navy abandoned and that somebody occupied and declared possession of, which these days operates as a huge anonymous server farm contracted out. I wanted something a little more habitable than that because that's tiny, small in this house. Uh, and then I'd been studying micronations in general for another writing project. You know, so what is the minimum you need in order to be a, a national entity? Well, distance helps because if you're further away, and distance doesn't have to be physical distance; it can be, you know, distance for travel and uh, communication your odds are much better that people are going to leave you alone because you don't offer anything that they need or anything that's cost-effective for them to get. So this is a rock in the middle of deep space in uh, our system that is used as a cheap waypoint for smaller shipping firms that can't afford docking fees. You know, same way airports and harbors have docking fees, so do uh, space stations. So they carry a lot of smaller, lighter traffic, and then they get disrupted by the war because traffic is restricted, uh, availability of everything changes, and that's all they have for income. That's the only thing they, or only service they have to sell, which is also a problem for a nation if you have limited resources to exploit. And in this case, all they have is docking services and support. Then uh, if anything interferes with that, you've got uh, significant issues. And then along comes the Starship with uh Yeah, someone may not be doing what we, they... Yeah. Well, they're scientists. They're actually doing research, and that's a convenient place to do research from. Uh, yeah. Who else uses the information the scientists get is, you know, and science is always available one way or another to outside parties. Yeah. And, the and, and, and offers the money, and they have to decide between taking the money or starving to death. So, yeah. that, well, that's an interesting part of the story is this is the idea of uh, Jackson Bates, who's the main character, uh, runs the head uh, the place. He's the president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this idea that he's preserving a legacy, but he also is is trying to face up to the realities of finance. So he's he actually right. sort of thinks of it as a nation, right? Oh yeah, it's, it's a tiny little nation, but you know, or you could think of it as a city-state. But he's got people he's responsible for. Uh, he doesn't want to just throw them out into uh, without some kind of choice on their part or some kind of option. So he's trying to persist as long as possible. What is what's the history of it? What is it? His his dad or somebody or his, or his he sort of inherited grandfather, it, if I recall. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there is a. It, it's almost like a, an old company that's that's, 
with a, with a lot of employees and nobody knows where they're going to go if they can't work mm-hmm. here. I've seen some very legitimate, honest, well-run companies who simply got completely bypassed by technology. Uh, look at the Swiss watchmakers when cheap digital watches came out. Mm-hmm. The, the goal then had been, you know, you, you got a Swiss watch because they were finely made and very accurate. And then here comes digital watches that are cheaper and just as accurate. And the initial response was, yeah, but nobody will want those because they're cheap and ugly. And, well, that's what you bought them because they were cheap and they were willing to deal with the ugly. Um, the Swiss finally, all those little companies, most of them are five, ten employees, they're little family businesses, they, they finally managed to reconfigure them as status symbols and art <clears throat> rather than as, as just necessities. And then, of course, they had uh, knockoffs getting made in the Far East to deal with. So. We've sometimes in publishing, we wondered if hardcovers are going to become uh, sort of niche, uh, <laughs> like vinyl. My thought was that hardcovers will stay in production as collectibles and for first uh, first acquirers. But it, it's looking more and more at my royalty statements as if downloads are displacing paperbacks to an extent and possibly yeah. to a larger extent. That is uh, – that, well, that's the conventional wisdom that, that um, e-books are going to take the place of mass markets, uh, which mm-hmm. is true to an extent. But uh, it, it hasn't, hasn't destroyed publishing quite the way that uh, the MP3s – really wreaked havoc in, in the music industry. But anyway... Yeah. Well, 15 um, years ago, publishers didn't... Most publishers, other than Bain, didn't want electronic publishing because, well, you know, that was the end of publishing rather than simply one more venue to uh, exploit and profit from. Yeah. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it, a Mike Williamson book is a Mike Williamson book. <laughs> I don't care how someone pays for it. You know, I, well, John Wingo and I joked on a on a panel at one point, we weren't, well, we weren't exactly joking. <clears throat> the dedicated reader should have a hardcover for their collection and attempt to get it signed, and they can have a paperback for reading, you know, their leisure and it's fair to give to friends. And then they should have a download that they can read on their tablet, phone, or other device while traveling, and the uh, audiobook edition that they can listen to while they're, you know, driving their car. So you, everyone should have five or six copies of each book. Yes, and they should also have a dedicated uh, e-reader that they get signed on the back by their very favorite authors. That yes. has yeah. the file that has the actual file that is their file, and they, it never gets erased on it as well. <laughs> There's another version for it. Well, uh, well, let's talk about uh, your perhaps first big space battle. Um, I don't know if it's the first one. But it, but it's a big one, and it's a great story. Hate in the darkness. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain and that's in your that collection? Right there? Yeah, and Star Destroyers, which is uh, which is out from Bain um, mm-hmm. that uh, Christopher Rocchio and I edited. Um, in your universe, there are jump points, and there are ships that are slower. Use another kind of FTL. Is that? Can you explain the setup for yeah. uh, for that story? <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the jump points are um, the the early ones are set up the the slow way. They actually had to send the, the initial ones. They had to send a sublight ship through as positioning point to the other end. Uh, as technology improved, they were able to either go around the long way or open it remotely. And the, these are established positions a ship can use. Think of it like a freeway ramp. <clears throat> The uh, uh, phase drive, which is just coming into existence, uh, the freehold's time point in the universe, uses more energy, is more expensive to build, that can be operated effectively anywhere, although the, the closer you are to a uh, gravity well, the harder it is. Uh, so people are reluctant to use them close to stars or planets. But they're perfectly viable further out. And, of course, as technology improves, that will also evolve. So they can go anywhere, but there's few of them. They're very expensive, and they're uh, more expensive to use. So what I've got in the in, in the wartime is that the few of those the Freehold Forces have, they basically use for shuffling around other ships 
to engage in combat. Rather than risking them as frontline combatants, they're shuttling around uh, reconnaissance ships that you know set up observation posts in other systems. They're shuttling around uh, warheads, special operations forces, uh, logistical supplies, <clears throat> because they can go literally anywhere. You know, if you're driving on a freeway, there's all this land next to you that you can't get off the freeway and do anything with or to from your from your car. Someone who's in a very effective off-road vehicle can drive along there, and they're unreachable to you, even though they're not necessarily very far away. So I've got a um, phase drive ship moving a smaller combat ship into the Earth system proper to engage in clandestine stealthy attacks, and then it'll be recovered at the other end. And our uh, our heroes, our main characters, are on a phase draft ship. Yes. That is uh, discovered and has to has to fight UN forces. And that was um, there, there's both historical parallels in submarine warfare, <clears throat> and then there's the famous uh, first generation Star Trek episode where they meet the Romulans with their cloaking device. Yeah, how do you find something you can't see? So the first thing I had to establish is, well, why can't you see something in space? Because there's no horizon, and there's no obstacles to hide behind. It's, it's hard to disappear in space, which is one of the big problems any space combat story uh, should be addressing, and a lot of them don't. Uh, the, the, you know, there's a, possibly a light speed lag in weapons effectiveness, and there's eventually, if you're using a beam weapon, there's degradation of the beam, and missiles may have a limited thrust range, but if you're visible, you can be targeted. There's nothing that you can use to obscure your presence, uh, other than to have very little signature of any kind and rely on the fact that you're a very small point. You have in the story, um, the captain has some say, but they generally, and I and it really felt real realistic to me in, in such a situation. Uh, the weapons officer, the, the Malin Metzger, um, is the sort of a math, mm-hmm. yeah, he's the math guy. He's the astrogator, mm-hmm. um, which is what this kind of space warfare requires. Um, was the the um, the basis of his job in this is <clears throat> very simple. The implementation is the hard part. The the basis is just stay out of range of anything that can shoot us. You know, first, don't let them find us. If they do find us, avoid their weapons and then eventually get out of the range of their weapons so they can't do anything to us. So it's, it actually it would work well as a uh, tabletop role-playing game because what you're looking at is, you know, if this ship survives this number of rounds, it's a win. Yeah, and he sort of is thinking about it. The, What's interesting about him is, and the situation is, the way that the captain sort of defers to him. Uh, is, did you conceive of this as part of like grand culture, or is it, and it's something the situation some requires? Is, some of that is actually Air Force engineer culture, um, because you know the different branches operate different ways. Um, the primary need of an air base in a combat zone is the flight line. If the flight line is not operating and you're not launching aircraft, you're one, not participating in the battle, and two, you're a defenseless target. The, the, the way an air base defends itself is with fighter aircraft. So and it was a, a question I posed. We were discussing you know, how military culture works in different branches. And in the, in the Army, it's very, very strict by rank in most cases. I point out to a friend who's done a lot of uh, Army combat service, if the flight line is damaged, the person in charge is the most experienced person in that field. There's no point in anyone else having an opinion because they can't do anything to it. So if the airfield is damaged, the base commander uh, uh, defers to the base civil engineer whose job is to bring that flight line up. And if that means shutting other missions down temporarily to get that going, that's what it means. I assume the Navy's still on board aircraft carriers. 
you, you've got to get the flight line up, you've got to have aircraft launching, or you're not doing anything. And the, the people in charge of that are the ones who have that particular specialty. So you know, if you're on the runway and they need to fix a crater, then the crater boss is the guy who's been to the crater repair school. It doesn't matter what rank anyone else is, that's the guy who's been to the job. That's really what he's concentrating on. And even even his, uh, you get the feeling that if he wins at the end, it's, he's just going to be satisfied. He's not going to be like, rejoicing or anything. He's going to be satisfied at, at he thought it through and he did it right, you know. And they, uh, and they survived. Kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, they didn't get blown up, freeze to death, or suffocate from uh, power being exhausted. Yeah. yeah. And they pulled one over on those damn UN people. So, um, question was, you know, after you get the attack in, how do you get out unseen? Yeah. Yeah, the attacks but on they're, the issue, the survival issue. They're in an underdog situation the uh, the mm-hmm. entire time. They've uh, they've entered the hornet's nest, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we're gonna start gassing her from the inside. Yeah, it's a cool story. Uh, after the freehold stories, we switched to some fantasy tales, um, which is interesting, uh, especially if for readers who haven't read a whole lot of of your. Uh, fantasy tales. Um, mm-hmm. A flower grows in Whitechapel's a, a touching stand. A lot of these you've done in Mercedes Lackey universes. Um, mm-hmm. Can you sort of explain that relationship and then maybe talk about um, Melee, uh, Mehua, yeah. that is. Uh, yeah. And the um, first story. This is the uh, um, uh, Elemental Masters universe. I, I was vaguely familiar with this first time we wrote in it. And uh, it was written with my ex-wife, who's uh, quite a talented writer. Um, I, I asked her to help because she's more familiar with the universe. And I, I've commented in the forewords, there's a couple of bits where she managed to die, tie actual historical events in. And so did I, but she went into a little more detail. Um, I've known uh, Misty since before I started publishing with Bain. We've been swapping emails on a couple of issues. Um, we're we basically at this point we talk in in person in public at events. We don't really correspond much. We're vastly diametrically opposed politically, and neither of us wants to irritate the other. So there's a detente there. <clears throat> but uh, I've written in both Bellamar Universe regularly. And then there was a break where they did two years of Elemental Masters, which is an early 20th century urban fantasy universe. And, and uh, you asked about the uh, the character. Um, yes. Um, yeah. So how did the LR? Wait. So there's this this sort of school for orphans that uh, uh-huh. this girl shows up at. Um, she's brought yeah, there. Yeah, she's an orphaned waif, and the elementals uh, bring her there and leave her in the care of these magic users. And it turns out that she's got her own talents. You know, there's been lots of stories with this kind of theme. In this case, her talent is breeding plants and causing them to grow, which doesn't sound like it's all that interesting or of much use, but it turns out that, well, plants have all kinds of properties that, you know, plants can be medicine, they can be poison, they can be cover, and... uh, her, her and they can the king. exploiting that. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Um, you also have a couple of stories from uh, Lackey's Valdemar series anthologies. Um, yes. The first one of those and, is uh, about coming of age and, and learning to contain power. What is what's the setting mm-hmm. there? Um, that's a uh, that part of that universe. It's sort of a high fantasy medieval although some of the cultures are much more similar to uh, Native American. Some of them are much more similar to Central Asian. <clears throat> so there's a, a broad mix of cultures that are available. And uh, the, the Shania in, in, in this there, a Plains Indian sort of culture with uh, that have access to iron weapons. So what would happen if uh, iron had been exploited in North America is the kind of culture they have. And then interacting with the rest of that established universe. 
so yes, coming of age, the um, young man has a betrothed back home. Um, he's being taught to control his magical abilities. She's uh, irritating back home and shows up with the livestock. And then the, the, at this point, these two are, because we covered that in the previous story, the two of them are reunited and have to deal with a variety of socio-political issues as teenagers, which is you know, bewildering, eye-opening, and leads to, uh, well, a fire in the grass. Yeah. There's, a, I mean, there's a feel of, of maybe uh, steps. Uh, it, it's not the same mm-hmm. culture, but, uh, it, you know, there's a feel of shamanic Siberian and... and uh, yeah. And and that as if it were in America, I guess. Um, it's right. uh, it's it's a it's a cool story. Um, mm-hmm. That there's a couple of them set there. Um, the I don't want to leave without mentioning also the other shared world anthology that you have a story in that's in this book is John Ringo's Black Tide Rising Universe, um, yes. which is a great mm-hmm. story too, uh, especially for those who either are sympathetic to or preppers themselves. Um, I, I felt, um, I felt stupid for a while. Grandpa. Yeah, I'd, I'd, had the, I'd had that rough concept of a story in the back of my head, you know, as a you know, part humor thing. And John said he wanted a story, and I was reading the first book to, you know, get actual detail because I'd heard a lot about it, but you actually have to read it. And, you know, interesting book, well done. Great presentation on how such a uh, plague would spread. It's like, well, what am I going to write? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff I could write. You know, it's just, oh, I've got that story about the crazy grandpa. <laughs> that would work here. So, yeah, everyone thinks grandpa's crazy and uh, over the top until the zombie uh, uprising actually happens. It's like, well, how could we go? Yeah. It's kind of interesting the way that you. I, I, it seems to me that the way you wrote it was you start in the son's point of view, who's who's uh-huh. kind of sympathetic because he loves his granddad, but he mm-hmm. also is like, oh man, I gotta get this guy to stop buying food and weapons and yeah. tone it down. And then you switch over mm-hmm. to grandpa's point of view after the zombies come. <laughs> He's like, yeah. these kids, man, it's it's really a it's a wonderful uh, actually sort of. I actually had a discussion sort of like that. I, I got called up in the guard for the Mississippi flood in 93. And uh, you know, we flew in and I'm looking down from the helicopter. It's like, oh, it doesn't look too bad. And the flight engineer says, oh, no, that's not the river. The river's 30 miles west of here. It's like, fuck me. <laughs> wow. Okay, that is bad. So we land and we're doing a lot of, I started off with lots of sandbagging. Later on, I moved to a water distribution point and managed that. But, um, lots of very disorganized sandbagging, even though the public affairs people were uh, insisting that everything was under control. Um, and uh, we geared up boots, um, gloves, uh, rain hats, and there's always someone who's officious and overly detail-oriented in the military, and they insisted we couldn't wear uh, bandanas or do-rags because they didn't look professional. We were just trying to keep the sun off our necks. And boonie hats were not authorized, and this wasn't authorized, and and my comment was, they don't care if we're wearing pink blanking tutus as long as we're throwing sandbags. They, they don't care what they look like. You know, the Missouri Guard turned out, and they were all wearing T-shirts with the sleeves ripped off. They, you know, they looked pretty disreputable. But you're waiting in mud, so who cares? So I'm standing there in, in formation in the morning in my gear, and I've got this huge Bowie knife on my gear because I carry a knife. Uh, shocking as that might be to some people, I carry a knife everywhere I go. And the acting first sergeant mutters to me, uh, after formation, I don't want to see that knife again. Like, yes, first sergeant. So I put it in my duffel bag, locked it up. And at some point during the day, a helicopter dropped a palletized bale of sandbags to us that was wrapped in steel cargo vans. Now, the typical way of opening these is to whack them with a shovel, and the band breaks. That only works if you've got a hard structure underneath. If it's unfilled sandbags, it, it, it just bounces. It's a spring. And they're prying at it with pliers and pulling at it, and it won't break. 
so I pulled out my pocket knife and I jabbed my pocket knife into one of the band restraints and jammed down on it and I broke the tip off the knife and I looked at him and said, if I had my Bowie, we would not be having this discussion. I'm carrying the Bowie from now on. I'm not asking. I'm informing you that I will be carrying that Bowie from now on. So next morning I had it on my gear and nobody said a word. You know, because it was a big enough knife, I could have put it underneath and just yanked and snapped the steel banding. But we weren't going to do it with pocket knives or pliers or... You know, as I've said, people say, you know, when all you have a hammer, is a hammer, all your problems look like nails. Like, but when the problem is a nail, you can't hit it with your hand or your shoe without messing yourself up. You need a hammer. Yeah. yeah. And a guy with the uh, with the moxie to actually carry it along. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of times in the field, you know, whether you're military or civilian, a big knife is the tool to have because it does so much. So, yeah, this is the grandpa who's got the, the big knife and some extra guns and a few more extra guns and some MREs and some tents and some winter survival clothing and water purification gear. And it's like, enough, grandpa. I'm like, no, it's never enough. And then the zombies came. <laughs> but I love the, uh, in the introduction, you say, uh, you know, how people say, well, I'm coming to your place after the apocalypse. And you're like, who said you're welcome? Yeah. Well, Jim Rawls, who runs Survival Blog, where I'm um, contributing editor at large, you know, I know where he lives. Um, there's probably no more than a dozen people on Earth who know where he lives, because he he's known as the disaster preparedness and survival guru, and he doesn't want entire, you know, Winnebago caravans showing up at his place in the great unnamed Western states, as he puts it. You know, if, if something does, disastrous does happen. So there's a very well, few handful of us who he knows aren't going to do that. Yeah. So can I, can I call you and ask you where he is at that point? <laughs> it's. Uh, I, I can I can recommend places closer to you. <laughs> okay. On the other end of the spectrum, there's actually a couple of preparedness groups who have websites who list what they keep on hand as far as emergency supplies and equipment, and their grid coordinates and GPS location. So this is an invitation, and one of them even says, "Oh, we we don't have firearms because we don't believe in violence." Like, so are you advertising the fact that someone should show up and loot you for everything they need? Uh, wow. Yes, you're advertising the Those fact are that crazy. show up and loot you. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, my, I I do a little bit of 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 keep of, of uh, holding up with stuff. My wife thinks I'm amusing. Uh, mm-hmm. She's not going to one day. God damn it. <laughs> She's going to be yeah. glad. So, uh, well, my, um, so we, my recent, my, my new wife, who, girlfriend for quite some time, my new wife, I live with my wife and children now, um, yeah, behind the house out, thanks, that was October, um, outside the fence up the hill is uh, a chicken coop, and this weekend we were helping her add um, a uh, rabbit hutch. And uh, she refers to one of them as a meat mutt. It scratched her hand yesterday, so that's the first rabbit that's going to be turned into stew or roast or something here in the next few days. And I've got a friend who, a dear friend for a long time, who's very vegetarian. Like, oh, you're 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 raising rabbits? You know, you're raising bunnies? I said, well, we're raising rabbits. Oh, well, what are their names? Um, I, well, I, I guess we could call them Haas and Pfeffer and roast and fricassee and. I, I could never eat a pet. Well, they're not pets. That's why they don't have names. Uh, if they were, if they were going to be pets, they'd have names, and they'd live closer to the house. But they're up the hill where they're tended to enough to keep them healthy and comfortable, and periodically uh, one of them winds up in the, uh, in the pot. Uh, that's the whole point. That's right. Delicious. <laughs> Tastes like chicken. So um, the other, uh, the biggest part of the book, or a big part of the book, is the uh, novella um, Battle Tide. Battle Tide. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is from Clan, Clan of the Claw, I believe. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Bill Fawcett created uh, little. Yes. I guess it's a series now. So this is yes, a really interesting alternate past sort of thing. Can you explain how? What world yeah, we're um, in here? 
Bill had originally helped put together what eventually became the hero, and I did a contemporary trilogy through him for HarperCollins and a couple other things. He's, he's great to work with, you know, one of the few last gentlemen in the business. Yeah, and he long, said, I've got long a uh, friend of Maine. Yeah. Yes, yeah. He says, I've got a shared universe I'm putting together. It's alternate Bronze Age. I need 30,000 words with lots of combat in it. Can you do that? It's like, oh, yeah, sure. That sounds like a blast. I'll send you the uh, the Bible and the first two stories. So he sends me the background on this universe and the technology available. So it's an alternate universe where the dinosaurs didn't go extinct, but evolved back down to more manageable size than the megafauna. And um, mammals also evolved, and the felinoids, felines, became the dominant species <clears throat> and the, uh, the they've got we have the Messinian salinity flood crisis so this is the Mediterranean being completely uh, almost completely empty um, realistically the bottom is not habitable the temperatures would be up around 180 the pressure would be significant nothing would live there um, for dramatic purposes it's not quite that deep <clears throat> the bottom is habitable but very tropical and then over on the uh, west side the they're supposed to be the west side the uh, the ocean opens up and it starts spilling in this basin and he specified the technologies available to the cats and to the, the reptiles and then I read the first two stories he'd gotten which were from Harry Turtle Dove and F.M. Sterling it's like wow um Having my name in a book with uh, these gentlemen is rather uh, flattering because <laughs> they, you know, they're huge names in the business. <laughs> and uh, because of the way Harry had done his story, we went ahead and flipped the landmass east for west. So it's, it's not an exact parallel to the Mediterranean, but uh, his story required it to go the other way. So the whole universe was was flipped, which is the great thing about writing, you know, science fiction. We can change the world. So there's uh, and there's these uh, there's reptilian uh, um, intelligence uh, Mm -hmm. humanoidish and and they have a mental control. uh, Yes, it's sort of magic, but probably not magic. um, Over they develop a side power that works, you know, to various extents on various creatures. Uh, they're very good with each other. It's harder to control um, intelligent other species. It's very easy to control unintelligent species. So their ruling species has others doing all the uh, the labor. Yeah. And our heroes sort of are uh, are the cat people, are the uh, mm-hmm. the rim. Yes. Who have. Something like a defense, which also brings into uh, play the the problem of Amazons, right, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, um, the the uh, the females are are more resistant, and they traditionally haven't had female combatants, so they need to have a workaround to develop this. So they've got uh, right at the end, they have. Um, I, I called them spear carrying cheerleaders supported by bagpipes. Uh, that's, a, that's how I wanted to do it. Uh, well, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. The whole uh, way that it works with their culture and and you work it out is really cool in the story. Um, we also have a portion of the book, of course, that is nonfiction, and you have some serious mm-hmm. stuff, like an article on the history of gun regulation and. Um, mm-hmm. And a, a long article on the kind of research you did to write your novel about um, the that is the the time travel book. Long time travel. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of humor. Um, so uh, to ask you uh, a question, you pose: Why can't anyone watch a movie with you, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember um, one time, especially um, if we're watching a cartoon. Uh, we're watching Pink Floyd's The Wall and you know, it starts off with the song When the Tigers Broke Free and One Miserable Morning in Black 44 
And here comes a Stuka dive bomber. And my father and my both go, Jimson, how many Stukas left by 44? I was like, would you just watch the movie and stuff? What? <laughs> There's any number of ways they could have done it, but they couldn't use a Stuka. <laughs> and, you know, we will mercilessly tear movies apart. And um, you know, my, my poor ex-wife always felt compelled to defend people when I would try and tear a movie apart. They're like, look, you know, it's, you know they're wrong. <laughs> and they can't hear you. There's no reason to defend them. <laughs> but, uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't find that to be a problem. It, it, I, I felt rather sorry for having to defend someone against my outrage and technical knowledge. Uh, yeah, and uh, any movie with firearms in it, I'm sitting there face palming. Yeah, everything. Well, you also have some firearms. Uh, you also have some interesting political analyses of movies like, well, stories like Robin Hood or, or uh, yes. Madagascar. No, it was. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Madagascar, um, um, and um, Over the Hedge, yes. Yeah, there's political subtext there that most people may have missed, so I'm glad I could bring it to their attention. Uh, you you really have us rooting for the bad guys by the end of the <laughs> Which we all sort As of one should. Anyway. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, look at the Star Wars um, movies. I mean, you look at the, emp- the Empire in the Star Wars movies, and the Empire got rid of the excessive bureaucracy, the excessive corporatism, and did in fact balance the force by getting rid of those meddling Jedi who thought they had uh, the right to control everybody's destinies. The Empire are the good guys. That's true. Radical. <laughs> to a point. A radical egalitarian. <laughs> Get rid of those damn force-using... And then the the lesson there is that, you know, they displaced the Jedi and had to assume their role. And then the same thing happened all over again. Hmm. It seems like there's nothing you could do to not be evil once you're at a certain... Maybe Google should learn something. Evil evil has so much more character. Uh, uh, The... um, it was an okay movie, but it had a great line that when they did Dudley do right as a live action. And Snidely Whiplash at the end says, you know, right up until the end, being the bad guy is the best job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, every actor wants to play the Bond, but that one thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so um, you also are an advice columnist in Another Life. A rather droll <laughs> And um, it, this one you do as your as Mad Mike. Who is Mad Mike? Right. Um, I the the biggest thing that uh, amuses me online, first of all, is you know, Twitter doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the president posts on Twitter. It doesn't matter what anyone posts on Twitter. It doesn't matter. And people would be much happier if they just didn't pay attention to it. <clears throat> you know, it's, I, I did a blog post a couple of days ago. I, I called it the two minute hate. Something goes on Twitter, everyone gets outraged, and then very quickly they find something else to get outraged about, and it's like, stop wasting your time. <clears throat> and you can't have a productive conversation in 140 characters anyway. <clears throat> um, I post all kinds of stuff on Facebook, and sometimes I'm just trolling. Uh, you know, there's, there's a small number of people who seem to believe everything I post is everything I believe, and I'm you know, some sort of uh, wannabe supervillain monster. Uh, I'm quite happy on my chunk of land and, you know, not quite in the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> With my family and, you know, the pets and edible plant, edible animals. Um, but uh, so I, I do a yeah. column, you know, ask Mad Mike, and someone asks a question. It's like, well, how can I tweak this for shock factor? <laughs> no. Let's see. <laughs> What can I post here just to throw a bomb into everything? Yeah. Well, you also, I mean, you can always, you are uh, incredibly tongue-in-cheek, but it's always pretty clear that that's what you're you're doing when you when you I, toss I out one so. of these bomb uh, Apparently bombs. there's a large number of people who, yeah, a large number of people who don't get <laughs> satire yeah. and, yeah. Well, you make fun of everyone equal opportunity. You have a you make fun of gun nuts, um, of which you are one, and uh, 
the left and the right gets it from uh, from Williams. And and finally, you and close out the book with another list. Yes, and libertarians. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, inappropriate inappropriate cocktails. cocktails. Yes. What, yeah. what are a couple of your favorites there? Do you remember any of them? In this one? Um, or any any of them? Well, one of the first ones I came up with was the, the Baby Seal, which is Canadian Club and Club Soda on the rocks with a uh, handful of squeezed Coke shootings and a bloody red splash of grenadine, and you stir it with a wooden stick, <laughs> which is actually a very, very tasty <laughs> cocktail. We, we, made, we came up with that, and I was like, but this actually really tastes good. <clears throat> Man, it should be a thing. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, this, the Club and Club on the rocks is what makes it work. Um <laughs> I thought I came up with a really good one for Powers Booth, his Kool-Aid with Southern Comfort, since he played uh, Jim Jones and in the movie Southern Comfort. And that's actually, you know, can be fairly tasty. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. Uh, what is it? What I saw that? Well, I won't hmm? try to go through them and pick one out. But you have a, you have a lot of great ones in here. Um, I think mm-hmm. just the uh, – a lot of your – books are are fairly serious in tone um the the fact that you are also hilarious um might come as a shock to some readers a, a very happy shock um and it's a really good reason except for the ones who collection. take it personally yeah <laughs> well we'll have to let them be where they are um so uh what are you working on now? Uh, are you working on the new time travel novel, or is it on to other things? I am. I'm, no, I'm uh, 75,000 words into that. But yeah, I'm working on the time travel story. I'm working on the next anthology, which, which is During the War, and it's going to be interspersed stories. It's actually, uh, some of the authors are coming back, Larry Correa. Uh, Brad Torgerson is going to be in this one. And the, the the book is developing the same way an actual rebellion would. The early stories are not very coordinated. It's like whatever these people can do to resist the invasion. And as it gets rolling, it gets organized, and they get their own intelligence network. <clears throat> and then the freehold equivalent of 4chan gets involved, and everybody's networks go down. Uh, it's looking to be a lot of fun. And, well, this is the sequel to uh, Force and Blood we're talking about. Yeah, it's not particularly a sequel, but it's um, it, it's another in-universe anthology. Uh, other and, writers uh, writing in the Freehold universe. Uh, yeah, using Larry's story, uh, which he, he ran the idea past me, and I thought it was fantastic. And I, I summarized it. Uh, you know, you fall for one of the classical blunders. The first, as everyone knows, is never get involved in a land war in Asia. The second, and only slightly less, <laughs> slightly less well-known, is never invade a nation that has an assassin's guilt. <laughs> <laughs> Always a bad idea. Uh, well, that uh, that's going to be great, and uh, we're looking forward to that. And right now, out now at Booksellers Everywhere is a entirely uh, Williamson collection. It's called Tide of Battle: Stories and Provocations mm-hmm. by Michael D. Williamson. It's available at Booksellers Everywhere. Um, thank you so much for being with us and talking about this, Mike. Sure. I always enjoy it. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them He united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, 
The consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. The heat was so intense that it was difficult to even approach the growing fire. A black shape shot between the storehouse and a burning shack. Ashok would have followed it directly, but his skin was not nearly as impervious as that of his prey. Despite the fact that they lived their lives beneath the waves, fire didn't seem to harm demons. Ashok ran along the shore, leaping from rock to rock, looking for a path through the flames. Unclean salt water soaked his boots, and he cursed the fools who would build a village in such a tainted place. Most of the residents had fled or died. Now the demon was just toying with the stragglers, feasting before it returned to the depths. They'd always struck him as spiteful that way. He spotted the demon again as it leapt over a rope bridge, but then he lost it in the smoke. The air scorched his eyes as he started up a narrow ramp after it. Ashok paused to tie a scarf over the lower half of his face in a vain attempt to strain the air. It made sense that the creature would have the advantage here. Demons could breathe air or water, and in comparison to that, what trouble was smoke? Ashok selected a path and pushed on through the maze of connected huts and scaffolding. The bridge was flimsy and rocked wildly as he ran across. He reached a solid platform, and a lucky shift of the wind granted him a lungful of decent air and a clear view. A few coughing survivors pushed past him to climb down the ladders. One desperately leapt over the side to fall into the black waves. It was foolhardy to ever touch hell but it was shallow enough here that nothing immediately tried to devour that worker. Tonight the ocean's nightmares were on dry land. He had been taught that the best way to track a demon was to follow the signs of chaos. Wherever demons went, they left carnage in their wake. They were the living embodiment of destruction. Sword in hand, Ashok moved down the platform, following the trail of blood and discarded body parts. Demons never stopped moving, and they liked to carry their victims' bodies as they bounded from place to place, gnawing on them until they found someone else to rip into. Once they'd gorged themselves, and their bellies were stuffed full, they would usually pause long enough to vomit up what they'd just eaten in order to make room for more. There was a foot, still wearing a sandal. There were several severed fingers on top of a pile of unidentifiable organs, he was on the right path. The trail led down another narrow bridge. The cracks between the boards revealed crashing surf below. The only thing separating his body from the evil sea was some rickety stilts and rotting wood. It was strange enough to make even a man without fear pause. How could anyone, even the lowest of the low, live like this? Then the wave retreated, revealing shining sand, and his confidence returned. This largest group of platforms was kept purposefully separate from the rest. This was the oldest and most confusing part of the village, with huts and structures haphazardly built in layers on top of each other for generations. It didn't matter which house's territory he was in. Castler's quarters always felt similar giving off an air of disintegrating shoddy construction and general filthiness. The law mandated that the living area of the untouchables be kept separate from that of the whole men. Bits of glowing ash were falling from the dark sky, and several buildings in the castler's quarter had caught fire. Ashok took cover behind the corner of a hut and listened. Something was screeching. It was a horrible, blood-curdling sound. He hoped the demon had attacked a piglet because that sound should not ever come out of a human throat, no matter how low in status the human might be. Keeping Angruvadal low at his side, Ashok stalked toward the darkened barracks where the cry came from. There was a sickening crack, and the noise abruptly stopped. Ashok froze. 
the demon knew he was here. The huge hut was big enough to house dozens of castlers. Ashok's eyes couldn't quite pierce the shadows inside, but he knew that it was watching him. He knew the demon would look upon him and see a tall man, lean and hard, dressed in lamellar armor, plates lacquered gray and inlaid with silver, held together with leather and silk, not so different from some of the humans it had killed before, and hardly intimidating to something as strong as an elephant. Only, unlike the others, this man was completely devoid of fear. Something smooth and vast slid along the floor of the hut, blacker than its surroundings. There was a shimmer as a bit of firelight reflected off its nearly impenetrable hide. It didn't immediately barge into the open to try and eat him, as he had hoped. He'd surprised the last demon he'd fought by sidestepping its charge and opening its guts with Angruvadal. This demon was not so stupid. No. This demon recognized that this particular human was somehow different than the others. It understood that this human wasn't prey. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the burnt-out ends of the smoky last days of a galaxy far, far away, but still smelling like cigarettes and whiskey one billion years later, and a distillation of starlight thanks and praise for Michael Z. Williamson, author of Tide of Battle. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>